You're listening to a University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences podcast. Denise Ho is an assistant professor of history at the University of Kentucky. In this podcast, she interviews John Cam, a visiting scholar and the founder and director of the Dwayne Hua Foundation. Cam discusses the role of the Dwayne Hua Foundation's advocacy work in a global context. This is uh, the next in our series of podcasts about the year of China. Today we're here with Mr. John Cam, who is the founder and executive director of the Dwayne Hua Foundation. Uh, last night he was the keynote speaker for our kickoff for the second semester of the Year of China at the University of Kentucky. And he's been on campus since yesterday and has been talking to UK undergrads and graduate students and faculty about um, his work and the work of his foundation. So welcome, Mr. Cam. Well, thank you very much, Denise. It's a pleasure to be here. Perhaps um, one way I can start us off is to ask you to introduce your foundation, the Dwayne Hua Foundation. Um, from the website, I see the slogan is Advancing Rights Through Dialogue, Yi Dwayne Hua Chang Ren Quan. Can you tell us a little bit more about the organization, perhaps starting with its name and what its goals are? The uh, organization was established in 1999. Uh, at that time, I had been uh, doing uh, this work that is uh, conducting what we call an unofficial dialogue with the Chinese government on prisoners and prison conditions. Uh, I've been doing that since 1990. Uh, but in 1999, I, I was given the opportunity of applying for a grant. Um, and uh, to get the grant, uh, I needed to have what is known as a pass-through organization. Um, more technically, in this case, a 501c3 nonprofit uh, organization. So I established Dwei Hua, uh, got our first grant, and uh, uh, you know began building the organization to the point where today uh, we have uh, 10 employees, mm -hmm. uh, two offices, one in San Francisco, uh, one in Hong Kong. And I travel frequently to China to engage the Chinese government in this dialogue. And Dweihua means dialogue. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's what we're about. Uh, our approach is uh, respectful and results-oriented. We eschew publicity as uh, appropriate. I must say sometimes it is uh, useful uh, to uh, do some publicity, outreach, media interviews, etc. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have recently expanded our mission to uh, cover what we call detainees at risk. So in addition to individuals who have been detained for the nonviolent expression of their political and religious beliefs, we have expanded our work into three other fields. Uh, one is uh, juvenile justice reform. Another is uh, issues related to women in prison. Mm -hmm. And uh, finally, uh, death row inmates. And uh, I might add that uh, whereas that first group, what some call political prisoners, we don't do much in the United States um, uh, although certainly there are people in prison for national security violations, um, we, we also do work in the other three areas mm -hmm. involving the United States. So we do try to uh, be balanced. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't 
uh, assume any position of superiority. Our position is that everyone has problems and we need to work together to try to address those problems. Uh, we do not follow the uh, approach uh, often referred to as naming and shaming for various reasons. Instead, we pursue the course of dialogue. Yeah. One of the things um, I was particularly struck by in your talk last night, and I think one of the ways in which you connected very well with our students is by talking about how you first got involved in studying Chinese language and then um, and then how that transitioned into a, a work in business and then in human rights. I wonder if you would summarize um, for our listeners uh, what first attracted you to China and, and caused you to engage in the field of human rights. Uh, I graduated from high school, uh, Neptune High School in New Jersey in 1969. And that happened to be the year that Princeton University uh, admitted women, mm -hmm. admitted uh, more minorities, and admitted uh, a significant number of high school students from mm -hmm. New Jersey. Uh, so I got into Princeton. And in those days, in the late 60s, Princeton was one of the few universities in the country that offered Chinese. And uh, uh, my mother suggested and convinced me that I should take Chinese. So I did, and I you know, fell in love with the language. And uh, after three years of college, I graduated early. I was what was then known as a university scholar. So I graduated early and I went out to uh, first to Macau, where I was a teacher, mm -hmm. and then to Hong Kong, uh, where I was also a teacher. Uh, but I began to write mm -hmm. uh, for business publications, uh, doing uh, the covering. The, the first real opening in China was after the Nixon visit in 72. Mm -hmm. then, Americans could start to go in and do business. So uh, I began to write, and one of the publications I wrote for was the China Business Review, uh, which was the magazine of the National Council for U.S.-China Trade, which was a so-called people-to-people organization mm -hmm. uh, involving uh, American companies on the one side and Chinese enterprises and to some extent regulatory agencies. And uh, so I began doing that work. And it was, in fact, as a representative of the National Council that I made my first trip to China in January of 1976 to mainland China. And uh, I recently wrote about that, if listeners are interested. Uh, it's called an article in the Hong Kong Economic Journal okay. called Shanghai at the Feather and Down Minifair. And it tells the story of my first trip. Uh, that was quite a year, 1976, and of course, uh, probably the the biggest event that I witnessed and uh, was 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 present uh, for was the Tongshan earthquake mm -hmm. in July of '76. Uh, so uh, I became more and more involved with business. Mm -hmm. In 1979, the two countries established diplomatic relations. I resigned and took on uh, agencies. Uh, to sell uh, products, uh, in this case chemical products. It could have been anything, but I chose chemical products for a good reason. Um, and uh, we, we, again, we adopted, my firm, uh, a different approach from others, uh, which was that we, uh, we, we concentrated on provincial level. 
I was I was convinced early on that uh, China would decentralize its trade, and so I set the first office up in in Guangzhou, first foreign office in Guangzhou in '79, and then in Shanghai I set up the second or third office in 1980, and so we pioneered trade at the uh, at the provincial and even sub-provincial level. Uh, well, my business was acquired by one of my principals uh, in 1981, and I rose through the ranks and became vice president of the region. My uh, business was very good, and um, so good that I could spend time uh, <laughs> working uh, as uh, an officer at the American Chamber of Commerce, and of course that led to my being president uh, right after Tiananmen Square. And uh, of course the, the story has been oft told, but at a, at a banquet hosted by a senior Chinese official, uh, a week before I was testifying in Washington, I interrupted the official's toast and uh, asked that he uh, help secure the release of a young student. And that was the first intervention in May of 1990, and that was almost 22 years ago now. Perhaps I can follow up and ask you how such an intervention works. Um, you talked about the different categories, the four categories or focus areas that the Dwight Hoff Foundation works on. I wonder if you could walk us through a typical case. You know, how do you decide to get involved? What are the steps in the process? Um, and, and how does it become resolved to your satisfaction? Well, let's, let's take a recent case. Okay. Um, in fact, I think probably the most recent uh, successful case of, a, um, of what would be called an important prisoner in, in Chinese judicial or penal uh, terminology, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, there's a definition of, a, of an important prisoner. So this is an individual uh, who uh, was, uh, still is now, a scholar. Uh, trained at uh, Harvard and Oxford, so he has a PhD from Oxford and a master's from Harvard. Uh, name is uh, Xu Zerong. Uh, he's uh, Cantonese, so that's Choi, and he uses David Choi as his name for many of his publications. And um, he was uh, arrested uh, and uh, convicted of trafficking in state secrets, which is espionage, well, not espionage, it's trafficking in state secrets, and uh, illegal business activity because he was running an, an unregistered publication business, mm -hmm. um, and given a combined sentence of 13 years. Uh, now, um, I became aware of this particular case uh, by his professors. Um, who were uh, advised, I believe, uh, initially by his family. And of course, um, it was uh, uh, an important case that had been taken up by uh, NGOs and the U.S. government and the U.K. government, and there was some coverage of it. I didn't find out about this case okay. through our own research. Some cases we do. But in this case, it's, uh, it was sufficiently high profile and the individual had numerous foreign connections, mm -hmm. uh, so the case was brought to me. Okay. Now, uh, in his case, uh, it's quite typical, uh, 
I uh, would first of all make sure that his name uh, was on uh, prisoner lists. Mm -hmm. That's my principal tool for intervention, is to put a prisoner's name on a list. Now, it has been the case. Um, there's some question as to the efficacy these days, but it has been the case that prisoners whose names are on lists are in fact treated better and do in fact uh, gain early release. I did a calculation, I think, in my testimony uh, 2006 to the House of Representatives um, where I looked at uh, the fate of individuals okay. who were on a, a list. And these are lists generated by governments or by nonprofits or something like Amnesty? Well, they're, they're all of the above. First of all, there are um, governments which have what are known as bilateral human rights dialogues with China. Okay. The United States, the EU, Australia, Canada, mm -hmm. Switzerland, UK, Germany, uh, Norway, uh, and uh, there's some dispute over terminology, but Japan has had one. So there are this, these groups, and, and from time to time some are suspended. Mm -hmm. Norway's is suspended now because of the Nobel uh, decision. Mm -hmm. uh, Canada is suspended uh, because the Canadians suspended it and they can't seem to get it started again. So. Um, so though that's one set okay. of list providers. And then there's the UN, mm -hmm. and the various treaty bodies and thematic mechanisms, and even the Office of the High Commissioner herself occasionally will ask us for assistance in this regard. Um, and then uh, every now and then you'll have, say, a, um, a group of congressmen or senators going to China, mm -hmm. and we'll help them with the list. Okay. Uh, and then there are our own lists. So we have that uh, unique ability as an NGO to go to China and submit lists. Hmm. And that's, of course, something I've been doing for a long time. Actually, I think my first list was in uh, 1991. Okay. So again, more than 20 years ago. So um, that's a very important component. So the, the name is always out there, and the Chinese government is responding and giving information and paying attention to this prisoner. In uh, David's case, I actually visited his prison mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, struck up a friendship with the officials in the prison. Mm -hmm. And uh, after David got into the prison, I, uh, I asked about him frequently and directly. Mm -hmm. And I focused on, since he was a scholar, getting him books. And this, very important. This was a, <laughs> a very interesting experience, uh, which I could go into in some detail. But in the end, he finally did get some books. And, uh, and due to his uh, high profile and being on so many lists, he was transferred mm. from uh, an ordinary prison to a model prison. And in the model prison, he was treated very well. He, was, he didn't have to do a manual labor. He was allowed plenty of time to write and to research. Uh, and uh, at the same time, I was uh, busy getting him sentence reductions. So finally, uh, in June, he was released after his third sentence reduction. Congratulations. Well, thank you. So um, in thinking about your role as an advocate, I was thinking that there, there's advocacy is working at multiple levels, mm -hmm. and perhaps two of them uh, the two primary ones are the direct advo 
advocacy, the kind that you've just described, mm -hmm. trying to improve the treatment of a detainee. And then I think that in thinking about your role as um, advocate and your speech last night, there's a sense in which you're also an advocate for better understanding of China among the American public, among American politicians. Um, I wonder if you might speak on uh, what's required for an American to be well informed on issues regarding China. Um, the mission statement of, or the, the one of the goals of the Doiha Foundation is well-informed, mutually respected dialogue with China. So how would you describe um, what it takes to make an American well-informed on such issues? Well, it's uh, <laughs> a big <laughs> question. A big question. I, I mean, it, 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 it could apply to almost anything, of course. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to, to get out and speak to the American people. Mm -hmm. And I do a lot of that. Uh, I've now spoken at more than 50 universities in this country alone, often more than once. So I, I speak directly to the people, and not only just, of course, at universities, but mm -hmm. at other public forums, mm -hmm. World Affairs Councils, the Commonwealth Club of Northern California, and so on and so forth. So uh, nothing, I think, uh, uh, well, of course, you, through that method, you reach people very directly, but it's limited in terms of the number of people sure. you, can reach, you can reach. So writing, mm -hmm. and uh, I often write and have articles published, uh, uh, you know, just, or letters to the editor. Okay. I did one for the New York Times recently. Uh, so there's, you know, there's, and then just, uh, you know, uh, interacting with people obviously on the internet, mm -hmm. and we have a, a website, which has recently been revamped, and we that. get about a thousand visitors a day. Wow. And sometimes we can get uh, more than 5,000 visitors today, depending on the subject. Then perhaps as a way to follow up, I could ask you, um, suppose one of the listeners in the audience wanted to have a primer on human rights in China, um, perhaps looking at the sorts of research resources on your uh, Doiha Foundation's website, how would you instruct a novice in putting together a prim short primer or course? How would you get started learning about human rights in China? Well, look, uh, a number of NGOs do uh, quite good work, and the Chinese government itself has become more proactive. So I would take the approach of uh, asking people to read both mm -hmm. uh, the Chinese government's position papers, the white papers, mm -hmm. um, and of course China now uh, is more and more connected uh, to the world community through the internet. Uh, read blogs mm -hmm. uh, though in, in English, not just Chinese, they, people do it. Um, and, and of course, the, the publications of governmental bodies and NGOs, the State Department Human Rights Annual Report on China, mm -hmm. uh, the Congressional Executive Commission on China, uh, various human rights groups, I believe Human Rights Watch just put out a report, China didn't like it, and China did a rebuttal, so read them both. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of material out there. Uh, and our website and our publications, our, our newsletter for instance, uh, covers, uh, you know, our own set of topics. You know, the, it's such a vast field. Uh, you know, w w here we're talking really about what are called civil and political rights, mm -hmm. but that leaves out a huge area, which is economic, social, sure. and cultural. And uh, I don't think there's anyone who would uh, challenge 
the statement that in the field of economic rights, uh, China has made tremendous progress. Uh, so, you know, it depends. It's, it's a big field. Trafficking in women and children sure. is a big issue. You see, and there, there are human rights issues that um, the position or positions of the Chinese government are uh, very much in line with the positions of the international community. And one of those happens to be juvenile justice. Uh, everyone, I think, would agree that uh, adolescents who make mistakes, commit crimes, uh, should be given a chance to rehabilitate and get a second chance. The adolescent brain, we know, is a, is, is a very different brain than the adult brain. Yes, that's true. And uh, a lot of research has been done on this. Uh, and, you know, adolescents uh, take risks that as you get older you don't take. That part of the brain is not well developed. It's, it's well established. Uh, so a few years ago, uh, China made it a top priority of their legal reform uh, to uh, reform the juvenile justice system. I mean, they really didn't have a juvenile justice system. Uh, and uh, great progress has been made on that, and I'm very proud that Dwei Hua has uh, played a leadership role uh, working with the Supreme People's Court, mm -hmm. Office of Juvenile Justice Reform. Uh, we've sent one, uh, we, we've hosted a group to the United States, we've sent one to China, we're about to host another one in the United States this year. Uh, so, you know, if you're interested in juvenile justice reform, definitely our website mm -hmm. is a principal resource. If you're interested in trafficking in women and children, I'm sorry to say we haven't done work in that area and we really haven't published materials. So it's such a big field when you say human rights. Sure. Uh, you really have to kind of drill down and say, okay, well, what are we specifically talking about? Death row inmates, capital punishment, is an area I've been working on for many years. I chaired the plenary session of the World Congress for the abolition of the death penalty in Paris in 2005. And our estimates have become, I think, uh, the most uh, widely accepted, respected estimates for the number of executions in China. And there too, I think, our work has contributed somewhat to the uh, sharp reduction in the number of executions in China in recent years. And that too, we're very proud of. I'd like to do more work on women and children, women in prison, mm -hmm. and we're going to uh, hopefully be able to uh, do a seminar on what, what's known as the Bangkok Rules. Uh, which uh, are the first international rules governing the treatment of women in prison. And, uh, and so that's another area where both the United States and China, uh, the percentage of the prison population made up of, by women, mm -hmm. made up of women, has been growing year by year in both countries. Uh, and there are many, many issues that need to be tackled here, including in our country. You see? Yes. So dialogue so, is yes. not so just... So dialogue is a two-way two -way street. Dialogue is not just a, uh, a, a channel. Mm -hmm. It's a mirror. Mm -hmm. You see? It's not just about going to that country and saying, hey, you've got these problems, this is what you need to do. It's about looking at yourself in the process. And uh, I must say, with respect to the treatment of women in prison in the United States, there are things we can learn from China. Absolutely. And uh, some of the, I think Americans would be shocked 
to know that in the, in the recent uh, amended criminal procedure law, women who are nursing children can do so outside of prison, including women serving life sentences for murder, are allowed to nurse their children outside of prison by law. <laughs> I challenge people to find a similar situation in this country. Thank you very much. I'll look forward to seeing what happens with, with this new project. Yep. Perhaps I can ask one final question to mm -hmm. conclude. Uh, we've talked about your personal history. We've talked a little bit about uh, kind of the more specific aspects of your work. Um, but your talk last night was actually about relation, the relationship between uh, China and the United States. And you ended your talk with reasons to be optimistic about the relationship with uh, United States and China. I wanted to ask you again, um, what are these reasons and how does the well-informed and mutually respectful dialogue both support and then further these reasons to be optimistic? Well, one of the reasons is that uh, the principal obstacle to good relations between the United States and China for many years, for decades, uh, has been what, what's known as the Taiwan question. And uh, really, the heat has been taken out of that issue. Interestingly, because of the development of democracy in Taiwan, uh, I hope my Chinese friends uh, reflect on that a little mm -hmm. bit. Uh, what happened was that the people of Taiwan, in a free, fair, nonviolent election, mm -hmm. elected the individual who they concluded uh, would be best suited uh, for continuing the rapprochement between the mainland and Taiwan. And it was done very openly. It was no skullduggery and what have you. And I might add, China learned from previous experience not to threaten, not to bluster, not to you know make dire warnings. Sure, they made it known who they preferred in their own way, but they learned from that experience. So uh, one of the reasons why I think the relationship between the U.S. and China um, long term is, is a good proposition uh, is the, uh, not the entire removal, but the reduction in the, in the importance of this issue. So that's one reason. Uh, the second reason I, I pointed out uh, was that the relationship has grown so big and so complicated yes. that I said, I said it's too big to fail. Um, and I, I mean, I just rattled off all kinds of numbers, two-way trade, half a, half a trillion dollars, almost certainly in 2011. Of course, if you count U.S. exports to, uh, to Hong Kong in the mix, then uh, it's well over half a billion, half a trillion. I'm sorry, I get my trillions and billions mixed up. Well, the Chinese do. <laughs> right. so, uh, so trade, investment. Mm -hmm. But one thing I focused on were you know, the numbers of, of Chinese students in this country, which uh, last count was 157,000. Uh, both undergraduate and graduate, and the growing number of American students going to China. You know, so many American students are approaching me and asking me, uh, uh, how do I get a job in China? How do I, how do I go to China? And it's, it's really a growing number. So we have that, and uh, as you very helpfully pointed out, several of China's uh, senior leaders have, have children mm -hmm. at American universities. There are now, I'm going to estimate, uh, almost 200 a sister city and sister province relationships. And I guess finally, and this is by no means an exhaustive list, um, the United States and China, the people, uh, 
generally speaking, like each other. Uh, Chinese made a great contribution to the development of this country. Um, the United States, although it certainly uh, participated in uh, in the boxer uh, retaliation and the invasion with troops, as you know, uh, the indemnity that was forced on China uh, was in effect used to invest in education in China. That's right. And you know, many Chinese officials have told me, yes, there's a lot of rancor and tension in the relationship, but a lot of Chinese appreciate very much that the United States did keep its market open, which, again, uh, I'm very proud to have played a role in that. My position has never changed. Uh, so there's a lot of goodwill there, and, and polls indicate that. Even though Americans see China as a, an economic threat, by the way, not a military threat, poll after poll, Americans don't see China as a military threat, but economic threat, yes. But just because Americans see problems in, with the relationship doesn't mean they don't like the Chinese. And in fact, the CBS poll, the most recent poll on these attitudes, has about 59% of Americans seeing China either as an ally or a friend. Mm -hmm. I used the analogy last night, anyone who's ever raised adolescent children will appreciate that uh, you can have problems with them, but that doesn't mean you don't like them. Uh, so, you know, these are the kind of uh, factors that I think uh, go into a long-term optimistic view of the relationship between the two countries. I think the key then is to see problems but also see opportunities and increasing relationships is certainly one means to that and, and I thank you so much for coming to the University of Kentucky and, and allowing us to increase this knowledge and, and relationships between the United States and China. Thank you Denise. This Thanks so much. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening, and thanks to the College of Arts and Sciences, the Dwei Hua Foundation, and the Department of History for making this podcast possible. For more information about the Year of China, please visit china.as.uky.edu.